name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We're entering a time of the year that is different than the rest of the year on the church calendar. Instead of talking about morality and about the spiritual life and about the basic building blocks of spirituality, which is what the rest of the year mostly is about, the church is focused on the day of the Lord. We talk about the day of the Lord during Holy Week when we talk about the reckoning of the soul, the reckoning of the person to the fact that they are going to one day stand before the judge that, there's a, that there is such thing as death. So most of our lives, we don't like to focus our lives on death. We like to focus on good health. We like to focus on how to maintain it. But when somebody asks, what am I doing this for? There is a reminder that there is an end. And this is what the church does at the end of the year, is that there is a focus, there is a bringing to remembrance of the fact that there is an end to all things not just to ourselves, but to the whole world. And so that's why for the last month of the year, the month of Misra or Missouri, as well as the little month that we call it, which is just a short, like, seven-day month, the readings are all centered around the second coming of Christ, the second advent, the day when the world will be taken by surprise, that there is an end. So... A lot of the times when we speak of the end of the world, most people want to switch to something else. We don't want to sound like we're superstitious, we don't want to sound like the left behind cult, we want to make sure that we're divorced from all of that. But the early church was very concerned about talking about the end of the world. Actually the early catechisms, if you go back to read the catechisms of St. Cyril, Jerusalem and other ones, a huge portion was dedicated to talking about specifically the Antichrist and the end of times. Typically, most people, when we get into the subject, will say, don't worry about that, worry about your own end. Worry about the fact that you are going to pass away. That's not bad advice. Um, It's good, of course, to be prepared at all times. But our Lord is very explicit in telling us about the signs of the end and that we're not supposed to just think about your personal end. And he tells them the parable of the fig tree, which we just read, where he says, just like when you can look at the trees and you can look at the leaves and you can figure out whether or not the season is near for this fruit to ripen, I want you to pay attention to the signs of the time to know that when these things happen, that I am at the door, that I will be coming soon. I know many people from all generations thought the end was going to happen in their time. I'm one of the ones who also thinks it could be possibly in our time. Um, based on what our Lord has said here and other things, but that's irrelevant. Regardless of whether or not we're right or wrong about His coming, we still need to be ready as though it were and to think about these things. So our Lord gave signs today. He spoke about wars and rumors of war, which many of us have seen already. He talks about a whole bunch of things, but I want to combine it with things He said in other chapters about the same thing. One is he talks about there being a great falling away. He talks about how there's going to be just this complete lapse from what is right. And I think those of us in our mid-twenties and up, or even maybe a little bit younger, have seen not just a decline, but like a cliff fall um, in faithfulness in the last 15 years, where it wasn't a gradual decline, it was just this instantaneous death that we're seeing where 
I think many of us can remember when it used to be a big deal to find out somebody had left the church to go to another church. It was Musiba. It was a big deal. Whereas now it's just like, oh, at least he's going to church, like to some church. Or at least he still believes in God in some way. And we're, and we're excited about that as though that's a great accomplishment because in this society it is, whereas it did not used to be. So our Lord said there'd be a great falling away. And then he said something more serious. He said, in those days... Because lawlessness will abound. Lawlessness meaning not that we need five billion laws, but in the sense of total undiscipline, total complete rejection of any kind of being bound to some kind of standard. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will wax cold, which we can see. We're a very self-centered society. It's all about whatever makes you feel happy, which is the opposite of love. Love is self-denial. This society is about self-gratification. And we can look around us and really question whether people are happy or not. That's its own discussion. However, this is exactly what Christ spoke about, that there's going to be that time where you can't rely on the fact that others are going to care about you because they don't, because lawlessness has abound. Then he says something even more grave, which affects us Christians, I think, the most. He said, in those days, they will have the form of religion, but not its power. And that's a very dire situation to be in, where we have the look of the formality of the church. We wear the amma, and we wear nice gowns that look weird to society. We have a structure, we use bells and whistles, we have incense, we have all of these things that are the form of religion. And these things are not wrong. He's not saying those things will be wrong, but he's saying that you will have them, but you won't carry the power of the religion, which is the faith behind it. Whereas we'll do a bunch of motions and have no clue what we're doing or why. And this, I think, is the most serious of all, which is this era that we're living in, where people know nothing about the faith itself or how to use it. And then people fall away because they feel that their faith did nothing for them, because they weren't living in it. They'll look at the stories that we read about St. Thecla putting his hands in flour and increasing, being like, yeah, well, that's never happened to me. There's a reason why it didn't happen. It's because we don't live that life of faith. We don't actually have it. Which is why even our Lord, it says in another place, when he went to his hometown, said he could not, not he would not, he could not work a single miracle because of their unbelief. So these are some of the signs of the coming. But then our Lord speaks about the abomination of desolation, which means this utmost sacrilege. And who he's referring to is the person of the Antichrist. And he says, The abomination of desolation standing in the holy places, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. And what he's saying is, in that time that there's going to be this complete sacrilege, that something very profane is going to enter into the place that we consider the most holy. So there's been types of Antichrist. One of the emperors, for example, after destroying the Temple of the Jews, erected a statue of the Greek gods, offered sacrifice, um, and, and brought in pigs. Just to say, whatever you think is profane, I'm going to bring it into where you think is holy. So what he's speaking about is the Antichrist, who is almost the devil incarnate. The devil is a, is a liar and a father of lies. And when this Antichrist comes, that's going to be a sign of near the end. But I want to paint an image of what the end could look like if it were in our times. Just to paint an image of, of wondering whether or not if we, were, if we are in those times, 
whether or not we would be aware, whether we'd be vigilant, whether we would, whether we would quote unquote fall for it. Because to me, when I would think about it, I'm like, some of this stuff doesn't seem like it takes a lot of brain work to recognize. If some guy comes and says, I'm God, um, it's like, okay, well, there he is. It's not a difficult exercise of discernment. And if he's doing miracles, then great, because it'll be a sign of the supernatural, and then people will be forced to believe. So it has to be a little bit more complicated than that. So the first is this falling away period where, no, it isn't as obvious because people actually don't know anything. We don't have the knowledge that we used to have. And if you look around us, we can see that the devil has prepared that very well with the strength of atheism. Atheism has taken over the world very well, including Egypt. We used to go, oh, back home, none of it. No, in Egypt, we have a quarter of our youth are atheists. So we're not in much better shape back home than we are here. And those who want to feed the spirit in this day and age, they don't go to Christianity. Like Christianity now, I hear things on the radio, this said matter-of-factly, in this post-Christian era, um, where they just say matter-of-factly that it's, it's, it's concluded, close, we're done with the Christians. Um, people who want, who want depth now will go to Eastern mysticism, they'll go to the Zen, they'll go to the Buddhist, they'll go to Hinduism, and this kind of Eastern spirituality, because they like to be <coughs> spiritual, but not religious. Um, we start to see a confusion between creation and creator. We begin to worship matter. This is what we're in right now. We're in denial that man is anything more than just an evolutionary process, right? That there's nothing more to man other than he's a better animal than the rest. To start removing from us, the devil's worked very carefully on this, a belief in being in the image and likeness of God. That regardless of how man came to be, what marked man as unique was this gift of the image and likeness that he gave to us, that set us apart from animals. It's what made us no longer just animals. But the devil wants to reverse this. This is how the devil works, is to take something true and to distort it. He doesn't always just tell an outright lie. He will start with something true and then distort it. The moral falling away has led each to do what is right in his own eyes. That's an expression used in judges all the time, where because there's no sense of authority, nobody knows what they're doing, just everybody does whatever they think is right. But the problem is that it's not even really do whatever you think is right. This is what we say. But this society is actually saying more, something more along the lines of do whatever you want and think whatever you want as long as you agree with me. Because if it was true that we were okay with whatever anybody believed, we wouldn't have contention, but we do. Because our different versions of right put one another at odds. Where I have a different view than you and it's, there's no compromising around it. There's a reason why smokers tend to hang around with smokers. Because if they spend all the time with non-smokers, there's an uncomfortable confrontation. That moment where the other person has to walk out for the smoke and these people don't. It's an uncomfortable feeling to wonder, am I doing something wrong? Why are they not also smoking when I do? It doesn't mean that there's judgment. It just means that there's uncomfort around people disagreeing. So even though we say everybody can believe as they want, the reality is that we don't. And this is all preparation. I want you to understand that this is not random that is going on. The devil does not sit idly waiting for some chance to work. He is working while we sit idly. So let's step back and look at the world for a second. We see wars like crazy. 
um, and rumors of war and we're all wondering when the big one in Iran is going to be and we're all wondering whether or not Turkey is going to get nukes and all this other kind of stuff. Um, and the wars are mostly about money, but they're using another image for the wars, and that's religion. And that's why we hear the common random expressions of religion has caused more war than it has caused benefit, and look at if religion wasn't here, how much better it would be. There's a famous John Lennon song, the Imagine song, imagine no religion too, and the world could be as one, and we all hold hands and skip in the fields. Um, but the problem is that it's not really about religion. It's also statistically not true that the majority of rules have, of wars have been because of religion, but even if we pretend it were, that doesn't make it true or false. Poverty and inequality is rampant right now. We see a huge disparity between the rich and the poor. The world economy is not what it used to be because the world is now one huge global economic market. It used to be that every country did its own thing, and it was a big deal when Canada and America made a trade agreement. I remember in school in Canada as a kid how excited they were that we could have free trade in North America. But with the global poverty and the world falling apart and a global economy that's falling apart and all we hear, I don't know anything about economy and I know that Greece is in a bad situation because that's all what the world is, is talking about. And through global multimedia, the fact that the whole world has become one mega culture, right? Everybody's on Facebook, Twitter, everyone has satellite television, we know what's going on as it happens anywhere in the world. The world is no longer becoming a bunch of isolated people in random countries, it's just one big population, which is setting the stage for a global leader. And in fact, there's already stirrings about that. Why not have somebody that runs economically above it? Just like how, even though there's European states, the European Union has its head, it has its chancellor, which has more than just economic power, it has political power. This sets the stage for this antichrist, for the abomination of desolation. Again, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen. I'm trying to paint a picture of what could it look like and would we recognize it if it were. Remember that the fathers tell us that Antichrist is going to be cunning. He's not going to be coming as this like terrible tyrant. He's going to be coming as the opposite. He's going to be coming as somebody with solutions. Somebody who says a lot of good things that are deceptive because of how good that they sound. So he's going to be a talker. He's going to be a very good politician. And we're told he's going to be wonderful and he's going to perform great signs and wonders. So let's say somebody comes and is saying, hey folks, you know, we have a global economy and we're going to all need to make sacrifices. We all need to look at each country and what we're doing, we're doing wrong, and we need to share the wealth. This person is going to come and say, why is there a disparity? It's because humans are selfish. And it is true, it is because humans are selfish. And he'll say, so we ought to distribute the wealth in a better way. And suddenly, you have a politician who cares about people. This is something that warms the hearts of the people. We get all nice and fuzzy, and we feel happy that there's somebody who cares. As for religion, this, from everyone's side, is going to be an issue. And the devil has learned a lesson that causing polarity is not a wise idea. If you were to come in and say, all you people who believe in God are wrong. There are people who on principle will try and prove him wrong. Just because he said it's wrong. That's how humans work. That's how we were as kids. That's how we are as grown-ups. If someone gives us an extreme, we will immediately try and find a reason to disprove it with the other extreme. 
So the devil is not going to be so, I don't think, so um, blatantly obvious as to say that believing in God is wrong. Instead, he might tell us that we're all right, which is a better lie. It's a more comfortable lie. When you want to tell somebody, a student or somebody that works with you that, you know, they're, they're wrong, you tell them that they're right. Yeah, maybe it's like that. Yeah, you have a point with this. But why not think also about this and this and this? It's the gentle rebuke that wins over many of us. So the poison is, imagine if he comes and tells us that what we call religion is just a misunderstanding of spirituality. That spirituality is one of two things. A psychological thing, which he will assure you is real. Psychology is still a real thing. It doesn't matter that we can explain it. It's still a real aspect of a person. That's something that we should even embrace. Or that it's simply a type of energy within us. That you do have this other kind of energy that we're learning more and more about and that the sciences as we progress will help us be able to capture and harness that we can use it. Imagine if he says that yes, this thing actually exists and is real, but it's part of your humanity. It's part of your natural evolution as a species. And indeed, I remember hearing um, in Canada recently there was a BBC broadcast where they were playing a wonderful speaker, um, a high-level educated former Jew um, who's a, a devout atheist, but he's an, a remarkable speaker, um, specializes in evolutionary biology. And he was talking about how the next step is for men to become God. said that, you know, we created gods because we needed them. Um, but the next step is for us to become the gods in the sense that we have authority over life and death because we're reaching that point where we know, quote-unquote, so much. And so then he could say something like, yes, Jesus was somebody who was able to really understand this energy. That's what was so special about Jesus. You won't deny that Jesus had something unique. Otherwise, he'll have a whole bunch of Bible Belt people up in arms. Instead, he'll say, yes, he was something special. And in that sense, a Christian can feel okay because their Christ isn't being undermined. Again, there's a sense of security. But he would add something to it like, but you need to understand that we all have this potential. Jesus was somebody who was advanced in his age um, and knew how to use this energy. But we all have this potential. We can all be gods, so to speak, as that one speaker said. And he will even use scripture, just like he did with Christ. Because he'll say, did Christ not say to you, did I not tell you, you are gods? Christ did say that. And the scriptures do say that. It's taking something real and just twisting it. Of saying, yes, your religions have been trying to control you. They meant well. However, is this not a better meaning? And then, he'll talk about how we need to capitalize on that energy to focus on what's good, what Jesus focused on, the goodness of humanity, that we need to care for the poor and to love one another and to treat one another, where he'll take the principles of the gospel in a new light, but removing one important thing, that Christ is God, by completely morphing it. The focus would begin to switch on all of us being gods or all of us being the same, that we should strive for goodness without making the mistake of worshiping religion. And in this way, he could resolve many wars. Because he'll just say, you're all right, why are you fighting? There's no need for all of this. This person was right, Muhammad was right, Buddha was right, you're all right, but you need to focus in on, on our oneness of humanity. 
then he could wage war against religion in another way, not by the sword. If it's by the sword, it could be against ISIS and all of those because it won't be against religion. It'll be against a physical threat to security. He could get away with that. But then what does it mean that he'll stand in the holy places? We don't have to look very far to see how this potential could come about. Let's use homosexuality as an example. I'm not going to debate the topic of homosexuality. We'll suffice it to say that we have a varying view than society on this matter. Let's say a priest or a servant or a Sunday school teacher or somebody in the church says some comment that somebody who is struggling with homosexuality or somebody who sympathizes with the cause perceives as distasteful. If, for example, somebody were to say that they think that this is unnatural, something, just one line like that. A person could take this and say, that's hate speech to me. You're making me feel uncomfortable. And if there's somebody sympathetic to that cause, and there are many, I know of a priest who lost his Facebook because of his views. Um, imagine if the government steps in and says, you know what, we don't interpret things this way. The science is telling us that this is natural, quote unquote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You are not allowed to say this. If you say this, this is gonna be considered a hate speech. We don't care what religion you belong to. There are rules in this country and we have respect. If you say these things, we will consider this a hate crime, and so you will not be allowed to practice as a non-government charitable organization. You could lose your charity status as a church. Unless you conform to these things, then we will not allow you to be called a church. What would that mean? That we could lose our status. Would that mean we're no longer the people of God? No, it wouldn't. But what it would mean is that the churches might no longer become in the building. It might be that the churches go underground in the sense that it's a matter of where can we rent a hall? Where can we find a place in somebody's house without formally being allowed to put up a sign that we are a church because if we are, we need government approval. It's very sly. It's not an obvious thing. It's not an obvious war. It's something that's done very quietly. And for those who might think this is a ludicrous proposition in science fiction, this has already happened in history. This isn't something that's just being proposed. Anybody who has read anything about Russia during the communist era, this is precisely what happened. Not theoretically, it is what happened. And the church did go underground. There were churches that were allowed to remain open by the communists, um, but they had to subscribe to a certain agenda. This is the reason why the Russian church split, was because there were those who were allying themselves with the government, and there were those who held ground and refused and were forced underground, many of whom were killed. So let's go back to the Antichrist. It says that he's going to do miracles even perhaps greater than what our Lord did. Science right now is blossoming. Genetics have come so far um, in the last decade that we're on the verge of some incredible things where we could take somebody's own stem cells and grow them whatever they need. If they need their own heart, we'll make them one from their own cells. They need their own lung, we'll make it for you. We'll design your own cells to repair whatever it is that's gone wrong in you. These are wonderful things. However, these will seem more impressive than the works of the Lord. Because the Antichrist can tell them, you know what? You go get your friends together, lock yourselves up in a room and fast and pray for 40 days. In one week, I'll give you a new limb. How is that for a miracle? You want God to intervene. And again, it's a distortion of reality. God isn't against us using the science for one another, but it's to remove the meaning from it of understanding that we were given dominion over the earth, including the science, of saying that somehow our God is undermined because we created something. 
it's a slight distortion that can go very far. In addition, it wouldn't be shocking if the devil gives him the authority to do miracles just to say, look, what Jesus did, I can do. It's not a miracle. It's this energy that I'm telling you about. So if you think this is a miracle, yes, I can do it, and you can do it too. Even though it might be not, it might be a supernatural work, but that he won't call a supernatural work. It's very, very deceptive. Because what the devil does is take something, twist the meaning of it, so that people doubt what they receive. This is how the devil worked from the beginning of time. When he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, he went to Eve and he didn't make up a lie. He said, is it not true? Is it not the real issue that when you eat from this tree, you're not going to die on the spot? The real issue is that when you eat from it, you're going to know stuff. And God doesn't want you to know stuff. What he said was partially true. It was true they were not going to physically die on the spot. It was also true that when they ate from it, they were going to know stuff. It was just not true that God was upset that they were going to know stuff. That wasn't really the issue. But he takes a reality, distorts it, gives it a twist, so that you have doubts. And that's what it is. Add to it now the decades of doubt that have been building up in humanity, and it's a ripe for the picking for him to just come and slaughter. So why talk about all of this? Our Lord said to watch. That means be vigilant. It means to be on guard. He said the devil is a liar and the father of lies. He told us that it's going to be rough. And the question for us is, are we ready? Would we be able to discern the truth from the lies? If that was the situation, how many of us would step back and think about what's underneath all of it, as opposed to just seeing some dude doing miracles and finding good answers for us? Do you understand warfare? Because you need to fight. And as our Lord said, how do, you, how do you go to war if you don't study your enemy? You have to know how your enemy works or you're going to fail. You could have this great design for battle and find out that they have a nuke. Well, good luck with your battle. They're going to get you in one blow. We have to understand how the devil works if we're going to fight. Otherwise, we will be deceived by modern heresies and by anything. You won't know the Lord's voice if you don't get to know him. If someone from this church were to come and tell me that Bruno Carlos threw a tantrum and stomped his feet because someone disrespected him on church, I wouldn't be able to believe it because I know Bruno Carlos. If anybody were to give me that image, it just completely defies the person that I know. Why? Because we have a relationship. It's the same thing with our God. If you don't have a relationship, you don't know him. And when somebody says something that's not true, you won't recognize it because you don't know him. So we have to know our God if we're going to be able to recognize the signs of the times. Unless you develop a relationship with Him, an experience with Him, if somebody lies, you will not perceive it. Second, our Lord said to watch, to be on guard. If you're on guard of your house, trying to protect it from robbers, you're going to want to be blameless. Because if someone breaks in on your watch, you're the one who's going to feel guilty. Imagine if you, like, oh man, it was the one day I didn't lock the door. Oh man, I forgot that, like, that we didn't fix the broken window. Oh man, I didn't know, insert excuse here. If you're really on guard, you're going to be vigilant. You're going to be blameless because you want to make sure that you didn't do something to set yourself up for failure. 
you need to identify in yourself whether or not you know the faith. You need to identify in yourself what are your strengths and your weaknesses. Because the weaknesses need to be worked on. The ones that are strong need to remain strong. They can't be neglected either. But if you don't work on these aspects of your spiritual life, then yes, you won't be ready for your death or the end of the world because you are, you are sitting idly. Our Lord entrusted us the house that He wanted us to guard. This is a sign of trust, of love. People don't let random strangers on the street protect their homes and their cars. You don't go to the middle of an alley and, and hire some guy and like, whatever, he has nothing to do, I'll pay him to guard my car. You don't. You go to the people that you trust, the people that you love. And indeed, our Lord said, you are my brothers, you are my sisters, you are my friends. He's calling us family. So he's asked us to stand on guard for this establishment, the church, which is one big family, to be alert, to be on guard, to be watching for the thief who's trying to enter, which is our enemy. And so we have an obligation, even in terms of love, for us to be on guard for the house. But don't think for a moment that our Lord doesn't feel for us in this difficulty. He said today, the times will be shortened for the elect's sake, because he realizes how difficult that it is. He said, don't worry. When between this and the other Gospels about the Second Coming, I know those times will be hard. I'm going to feed you. Actually, in Revelations, the first thing he says is, I'm going to feed you. He knows that our first concern is usually materialistic. And he's like, I get it, don't worry. Even the food, I'm going to supply. I'm going to send you to a place. I'm going to protect you. I'm just asking you to remain faithful. And even greater than this, he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit on my throne. This is a huge honor. Imagine when, when the king says, I'm going to share my throne with you. Usually people are waiting for the king to die so they can take the throne. Whereas this king is saying, no, 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 no. I am going to give it to you happily and willingly. All I ask of you is that you remain faithful, that you remain true, that you endure till the end. So in this season, the new year, reflect on whether or not you are watching, whether you are paying attention to the signs, and if you are ready, either for the ultimate time of trial or for the day of your own departure. So that whether we die in the time of tribulation or we die before them, we can say, O death, where is your sting? And as our Lord said, what I say to you, I say to all, watch. The Lord be to God forever and ever.